Welcome back to the Innovators Podcast. Here on this episode, we get to interview Tom Swartwood. Tom is an associate professor of practice in the Ivy College of Business, and he's also the inaugural entrepreneurship fellow in the John Papa John Entrepreneurship Center. Tom wanted us to start off with a special shout out to John Papa John for uh, starting up the Papa John Entrepreneurship Centers. It's a really unique program uh, across five different universities. Uh, there's one at each of the Regent universities, as well as North Iowa Area Community College uh, and Drake University. Just kind of an unusual statewide program and really a great program that you'll hear quite a bit from folks from the Papa John Center on this podcast. We talked with Judy Isles earlier. and We'll also be talking with Diana Wright on a future podcast. So just a great program that we wanted to highlight and I hope you enjoy this episode with Tom. Thanks for thanks for the time today. Do appreciate it very much. Um, maybe just very very beginning. Start off and give everybody a little background. Sure. Uh, talk about talk about um, your experience to this point, and and we'll go from there. Okay. So my name is Tom Swartwood. I am the inaugural fellow for the John Papa John Entrepreneurship Center at Iowa State University, and I'm an associate professor of entrepreneurship uh, in the Ivy College of Business. Uh, I found my way into the academic side of entrepreneurship about 20 years ago after a successful career as an investment banker where I worked with early stage companies, not startups, so I wasn't a venture capitalist. Uh, I wasn't starting at the idea and the concept phase. We worked with companies that had started business and needed money to get to the next level. All very entrepreneurial. In fact, these were people who could legitimately call themselves entrepreneurs because they had started something. Uh, of course, in the process of looking for those deals and working with those men and women, uh, some of them had to change, pivot, everybody likes to call it today, or they changed direction. They would often come back with new ideas. And we, we kissed a lot of frogs that uh, in the early stage, or polywogs, actually, because they weren't even frogs yet. We'd like to work with frogs. Um, uh, but that's where I cut my teeth. I mean, prior to that, I practiced law for a few years in New York City, typical Park Avenue law firm. Uh, but I, that was also connected because the, the teams I worked with, and I, and I was a corporate lawyer, did a lot of M&A type work. Uh, the firm had established a very robust practice in working with early stage companies way back at the beginning of the digital revolution, uh, had some med tech stuff going on. Worked with a lot of Israeli companies because uh, a number of the partners had ties with Israel, and Israel was a, a leader, particularly in the early networking and the development of, of digital networks and things like that. Um, but my deals I worked on were computer retailer, a hospital management company, I mean, kind of more mid-tech, kind of nuts and bolts stuff, but all very entrepreneurial people. And, uh, and the leading partners in that firm were very entrepreneurial, which was unusual in the legal profession. Uh, I mean, going backwards, um, I got my law degree at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. I was a history major at Dartmouth College, which I really enjoyed. I wasn't a very good history major, but I liked it. Um, while I was in college, I worked in the coal mining business in Harlan, Kentucky. It was an underground coal mine. I was not a coal miner because I didn't know anything about that. I had no skills. It was a very dangerous job for 
unskilled people, but I I could pick up stuff. I could dig holes. I could fill them up. I could paint stuff. I could take paint off of stuff. I could drive a bunch of different trucks and tractors. Uh, most fascinating, hardworking, dedicated, resilient people I've ever met in my life. Uh, and I mention that because I've been working in some form or another since I was about 14 years old. I was a caddy when I was younger. Uh, worked in the coal business all through college um, and after college for six months um, before I went to law school. Uh, and I found that that forced me to interact with people I didn't know. I was fortunate I caddied for the then Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, Bill Simon. He was kind of a jerk, um, <laughs> terrible golfer, and he stiffed me. I'll never forget that. But I also caddied for the Women's State Amateur Champion. She was the best player I ever caddied for, and the only uh, loop I ever gave to give me a kiss at the end of the round. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, club champions and duffers. I mean, I, and so I got very used to dealing with different people. Mm -hmm. um, I, my, I myself am more of a duffer, I'm sad to say, but I still like it. Uh, but it got me out and about. Uh, the other, the other kind of entry point for me into entrepreneurship was my father was involved in investment banking, uh, had started his own firm in 1969 very early, working with these risk-oriented companies, which was very unusual 50 years ago, now almost 60 years ago. Uh, uh, he was a pioneer in that realm, and he was always bringing home paraphernalia and prospectuses on deals. From the time I was a teenager, I was he would talk about deals, and I was just and it was fascinating because in that in his world of investment banking, you'd have to take a deep dive, and he would become as expert in these companies as uh, the people working in the businesses. Uh, and what he taught me, and what I, you know bring forth to today and how I ended up in academia is you can learn just about anything if you put your mind to it. Uh, he happened to be educated, and uh, but he, he wore his education very lightly. He, he, he didn't talk about it a lot, but he was an avid reader, and he was very good with finance and accounting, which are fundamental tools for all business people. But he just believed that if you wanted to do something, go teach yourself and uh, learn how to do it. And that's where he uh, made his success in investment banking. And uh, he actually was very active in the coal mining business, but he was also active in some med tech. And uh, he had a knack for working with these developing entrepreneurs that, that has affected how I conduct myself and how I interact with people. Um, so you've been in the space, you've been in the entrepreneurship space for most of your most life. Most of my life. What, where was the, um, may, you know, is there one line in the sand where you were working in law, you were with the investment bank, where was the line in the sand that you switched back over to, to education and teaching that? Well, there kind of was, in fact, I, um, in hindsight, I don't think I was a very good lawyer. I could have been, I guess, but it really took a lot of nitty gritty attention to detail. It was a real grind starting out. Um, and I th thought that the people doing the deals, the people running the businesses, uh, and the people that were working with them directly, and I was always, you know, one or two clicks away, and I mean, we were we were servicers. I mean, we, we weren't involved in the the uh, give and take and the rough and tumble parts of the deal. I just thought they were having more fun, and I thought they were doing stuff that was more meaningful. Um, and I actually uh, had a job offer from another law firm. And uh, I turned it down because I thought, well, it's going to be the same. It, it, 
it was a cool group of guys and gals. Uh, it was small. I liked that. I really, I didn't really want to work for a big firm, and I never did. Um, but I wanted to be closer to the action, and then I just finally decided that, well, I'll take a plunge. And after three years as a corporate attorney, and I and I did figure it out eventually. I, I got to be pretty good. Uh, I, I tend to be, I, I can learn things, but it often takes me a while, and it did in that case. But I realized that I didn't want to be working for these other people for the next kind of forever because that's what it was going to be. I wanted to get more involved. I wanted to get closer to being in control of my activities and my, my future, my potential to develop wealth. And uh, the investment banking seemed to be a way to do it. I didn't have any friends that wanted to start a law firm. I did think about that, but I wasn't going to do it by myself. And I didn't at that time have any friends who were starting their own businesses because that was the other thing I thought about doing because I didn't have any kids, um, wasn't married yet, uh, so I could have. Uh, I was in New York City, thought I'd live and die within an easy commute in New York City. Uh, ultimately, New York wore us down. Uh, we stayed there for 12 years. And I was a partner in my firm. My wife was a partner in her firm, but we were just the grind. That grind was killing us, and that's what brought me to Iowa. We started looking around for places to go, and I'd been involved in a deal. A company We bought a company out here. Uh, that was headquartered in Des Moines and lifestyle. We were looking to get out of New York City, and none of my partners wanted to move to Iowa. My oh. wife's from Missouri. Uh, I kept complaining about not having any ownership in Iowa, and they finally said, well, then you move. So we did, 1994, and we thought we'd stay for five or six years. What was the company? R.G. Dickinson. It was a, uh, at that time, it was about a 40-year-old. It was an investment in stock brokerage firm. It was different than ours because they had a big retail distribution for that a couple hundred stockbrokers scattered around the country uh, which is a whole nother ball of wax uh, but I got involved in management and executive uh, and the board of directors there in the executive direction and uh, everything from copier leases to customer complaints and we raised about 120 million bucks over eight or nine years uh, for about two just under two I think it was 22 companies it was a very successful investment banking business, um, and we helped a lot of entrepreneurs build their businesses. Most of those businesses are still in business. They didn't all grow very big, but but they all got started. They all they all grew further than that. I think only one or two went out of business. So where do you exit that and enter? What's the next step, Drake? So um, probably about I became president of that firm around nineteen. Let's see, 94, 95, 95, 96, something like that. And uh, we get out of the retail side of the business, the stock brokerage business, in the late 90s. It was very hard. It was heavily regulated. We had a lot of uh, uh, brokers who were tough to manage, to put it diplomatically. Um, and the deal business started to change. Uh, the, stock, the, the markets were changing. Our bread and butter was... Uh, four to five million dollar public offerings they, those things haven't been economical for 15 years so late 90s right around 2000 we exited the retail business we maintained a small broker dealer and continued to help companies raise money and did that for another four or five years into the 2000s um, and then I basically retired from the registered investment banking stock brokerage business in early to mid 2000s and I served as a consultant I continued to advise my old firm 
and would work on deals, but just on a contract basis. Um, and then a friend showed me an, uh, an advertisement to teach a class in entrepreneurship for Simpson College. And I, th I, I think I called the person and they said, yeah, we'll meet. And I said, where would you like to meet? And they said, well, how about Baker Square, which is very unusual for academia. You generally don't meet at a pancake house for an academic job. I didn't know any better, so I went and met with them, did this kind of thing that I'm doing with you. And they said, oh, that'd be great. We'd love to have you. I said, cool, I'll do that. I'd I had taught. I had, I had been a uh, teaching assistant for French language classes in college. I was a teaching fellow in law school. Uh, I had a little bit of experience. I really liked it. Um, I'd done a whole bunch of training in-house, but I hadn't done formal university teaching. So they said, yeah, that's great. We, you know, we'll get back to you. So they get back to me, and they said, eh, we can't offer that entrepreneurship course. I guess they didn't get enough people to sign up for it. And this was for uh, one of their adult ed programs, so these were six-week classes. They said, but we have a money, money and banking class. I said, oh, you want to teach that? I said, sure. And, and they said, oh, can you send us your transcripts? Because we, we got, it's a requirement, we have to put your transcripts on file. I said, oh yeah, absolutely. I hadn't looked at it. I, hadn't look, I had never looked at my college transcript and I had never looked at my law school transcript. I was like, I don't know what's on those. So I got them and of course I had to, they have to go to the employer, the school directly from my alma maters and they did. They sent me copies. And the reason I mention that is uh, I had actually enrolled in money and banking the spring of my senior year in college and when I got into it, it was so damn hard, I dropped it. Because there was no way I was spending my last 10 weeks as a college student. or 14, We were on a uh, trimester basis at Dorman. It was, that, that class was going to kill me. So it was on my transcript, but I, but I had a withdraw next to it. And I thought, this is going to be the shortest engagement I've ever had. But if they got it, they didn't look at it, because I went ahead and taught that course. And it was really hard. And I was good for about the first two-thirds in the last, the last part of that class. I was just hanging on for dear life. But I loved it. And I had a really interesting cohort. Uh, I worked as hard on that as anything I'd ever worked on. And then I just started knocking on doors and kicking around town, fully intending it to be a side gig. It's something I'd always thought I wanted to do uh, as an adult, and even when I was younger. And um, I just had a knack for, I mean, I'd talk to anybody. I'd bump into college presidents and, I didn't know they were untouchable. I didn't know they were the highfalutin people that they are, in fact. And I just say, hey, I'm you know, Joe Blow. I like to teach, and here's my resume. And so, uh, I got my foot in the door at DMAC. I taught, a, I taught a lot of stuff at DMAC. I taught at Grandview. I taught for Upper Iowa. Uh, I helped build the entrepreneurship program at DMAC. Um, I knew the dean at Drake. Uh, Charlie Edwards, and he was kind of getting a kick out of this. We'd bump into each other socially and say, how's that stuff going? I said, oh, it's, you know, it's going. I said, what's going on at Drake? And he said, oh, you know, we may have something going on. And they weren't really paying much attention to entrepreneurship at first, but they uh, had an opportunity. They got some money, and they, they got a very good faculty uh, member, a woman named Deb Bishop, who actually has an engineering and org systems background, uh, but she helped rejuvenate and really rebuild their entrepreneurship program. The faculty committed to it. And um, he said, well, go talk to Dr. Bishop. If you guys hit it off, maybe we can do something. Well, we did. And she and I are like yin and yang. I mean, she's organized. She's very, I mean, she's quite proper. She's really smart. Uh, she never had her own startups. 
uh, but she worked for Intel. I mean, very, very comfortable in the entrepreneurial, very comfortable in the innovation world. And I was everything that else. And we were a great team. And we did all kinds of stuff. And I started out teaching a class. Um, uh, I ended up being asked to step into the capstone when the fellow, one of the people who was, was going to teach it became unavailable. Um, a team taught that class, which I still think is a good approach. That went very well. Uh, came, they, they asked me back, somewhat to my surprise. Uh, they kept asking me back. They arranged for me to get some training. I met the head of the health science department at, a, at Drake, I mean, 200 yards from where I taught, but we met at a conference. We hit it off. She asked me if I'd like to teach in the health science program. So now I'm teaching the business school. I'm teaching the College of Pharmacy and Health Science. I'm just getting paid, you know, by the piece, basically. But very few people did that. And, and still to this day, very few people do it. I'm not aware of anybody up here that does it except me. Uh, but I was at Drake for 10 years, and I wrote the curriculum at Drake, um, continued to advise companies on the side, continued to uh, be in, involved with a couple remotely from an investment banking perspective, but helped develop the, the undergraduate curriculum, created a major and a minor. We started a, a hatchery program, which is like size starters at Iowa State. Uh, that we, had, we got some funding from an alum to do that, and we built that program. I started a boot camp for women entrepreneurs. That was in response to Iowa showing up at the bottom of a list, I think second to last to Mississippi, which with all due respect to Mississippi, not a good place for us to be. And uh, for about, I think for five, four or five years, we operated and ran uh, dozens of women through a boot camp. I had a collaboration going with uh, two people up in the Cedar Rapids area, we were Mount St. Uh, Mary's, and we were doing remote programs. And we were about 90 days from, this is pre-podcast, pre-streaming, but we actually streamed those sessions, and we were going to take it remote, and we were going to build a women's boot camp in a box, and they lost their funding, and within weeks, they both went off and got other jobs, and that was the end of that. Uh, we we carried our, pro our program on at Drake for another couple years, and it, we changed direction, and I got busy with other things and, and ultimately let it go. But uh, Diana Wright does similar things here, and I'm a big supporter, and it is a passion of mine to work with the women entrepreneurs. I have uh, noticed in my life, you know, I've unfairly perhaps, but whether it's unfair or not, I, I have advantages. I'm a, you know, a white guy from the Northeast. I've got a great education. Uh, but throughout my education, both as an undergraduate, college, and then ultimately, I did go back and get an MBA, by the way, in order to help me teach. But I've always noticed, uh, I've always had very smart women classmates, frequently very smarter, much smarter than me. And in talking to them, realized that they, they had started behind the starting line that I started at. Um, and I came up in an industry, in the investment banking industry, there were virtually no women involved, and to the extent there were, they were not treated well. And I was, I had blinders on. I was kind of clueless to that. Something that has, that has stuck with me. And I believe that uh, mentoring and, but leveling the field for entrepreneurs, uh, particularly when it comes to getting money and getting in front of people, it's still a challenge for uh, women and, uh, and people of color in, uh, the entrepreneurial space around the United States is getting better. That's something I, you know, continue to be passionate about. Mm -hmm. So, well, I, you know, I, I, but I did, I did, I went back on an MBA mostly to teach, and I did it at Drake. 
um, because they had all full-time faculty teaching their MBA courses, and they were very good teachers, and they, they were great role models for me, and a couple of them uh, remained mentors for me later on. And lo and behold, you know, I was able to go from adjunct to visiting professor to I got a full-time teaching appointment uh, at Drake and served as uh, uh, kind of a, this hybrid role of assistant director for the Papa John Center, helped start an innovation center there, uh, which I did in collaboration with a journalism faculty member. I initiated the, the Innovation Fellows Program where we were paying faculty members to get them a little room so they could come and work with us from these other schools because I believe that it was important for Drake and I believe it's important for Iowa State. So does Dr. Winterstein and Dean Spaulding to put entrepreneurship in all four corners of the program. It's one of the reasons I came to Iowa State. And I, knew, I know Spaulding. Uh, he's a Dartmouth guy. And uh, we were comparing notes, and we had a cup of coffee one time, and he lapped the field, man. I mean, the, the program here got big. Uh, Papa John Center was very robust. I'd known Judy for a long time. She, Judy Isles, the director of the Papa John Center, she's a force of nature. I knew Diana Wright, had a lot of respect for her, have a lot of respect for her. Uh, Dean Spaulding helped get the major minor going, uh, got a PhD program going, um, hired entrepreneur, well-qualified entrepreneurship faculty. I was the only full-time faculty member at Drake. And uh, he had a great line. We were having a cup of coffee, and he said, yeah, I need a Thomas Fortwood. And I laughed. And I said, yeah, there's only one of those. And he laughed. And he said, I know. And on my way, I remember I'd driven up here, and on my way back, I called my wife. And I said, hey, I think the dean just made a pass at me. And it was out of the blue. Um, and then in true academic fashion, you know, that was in the early fall of 17, I think it was months before anything came to the front, but I think it was in January, February, and uh, I threw my hat in the ring and went through the process and uh, was fortunate they made an offer, but I remember the offer came in like the middle of the summer, or middle, late spring, and I started in August of 18 here. They didn't know what to call me because I was only part-time faculty, and I said, well, how about a fellow? Because I'd use this fellow concept, and that's kind of how I found myself here. So what are you doing now? What do you do here at Iowa State, whether it's the Papa John Center or on campus? Or so I, I, this, I, I teach entrepreneurship courses, and I've taught the intro course uh, and the uh, culminating course, so-called Capstone, which is an experiential course. Um, I'm teaching the Capstone now, and then in the course of my conversation with uh, Dean Spaulding, I had inquired about family business because I had been looking at that from a investment and business perspective. And there's a lot of family businesses. I knew a lot of very successful second gen and, and third gen coming family business people. Um, and there are a lot of issues out there, but lots of opportunities and a lot of money. And I had to figure, man, land grant university center of the state got this big ag presence. Those are family businesses almost by definition. And to my surprise, he said, no, I was like, oh, man, we got, you should have a family business deal. And he said, yeah, I think that. He said, I'm working on something. Stay tuned. So uh, we took a deep dive in, in looking at a, uh, some ways to support family businesses around the state, and we're, and we're exploring, continuing to explore those. But last summer, in the midst of the pandemic, it bubbled up that there was interest at the administration level in offering support for family business. Long story short, like all my stories, they all tie together, though. They all connect. Um, the head of the 
management department, Deirdre Schleicher, called me and said, hey, remember that conversation on family business? And I just started to laugh because when I said that to him, I said, by the way, I'm probably not the guy to teach it. There, there, are, there are probably better qualified people, but as it turns out, nobody here better qualified. So she said, would you like to teach that course? And when you get asked that by the head of the department and she frames it with, I just talked to the dean, those aren't really requests, even for some you know, old dude like me. But I said yes, and so I'm doing that right now. So that's, you know, my deal is that's about 40% of my time is kind of more traditional academics. Um, uh, In that class, do you get a lot of students who are just taking it, uh, you know, to, to fill requirements? Or do you have a lot of students in there who are, you know, whether they are part of a family business or they may become part of a family business? What does that look like? So that's a great question. So we're, we're in our first cohort, uh, just this first time I offered, there's 12 students, pretty good for experimental size. I, I think it will grow bigger. And um, three of them are involved in family businesses. Uh, Ag-based or not? Pardon me? Ag-based or no. not? No. Uh, in fact, none of them, much to my surprise. I got no ag students, but it's a business school course. Sure. And it was only promoted in the business school. I hope it will be opened to the mm -hmm. entire campus, but starting out, it'll, it'll be a business school course, and that's a limiting factor. Um, and we get we get ag people in the business school, but none showed up, so I'm I'm kind of surprised. And then I think out of the so three are family business. I think three, they needed three credits. There's a new course. They figured how hard could it be, mm -hmm. and they showed up. Uh, it's a great cohort, though. Uh, they are identifying it, and it's very issues driven. I'm going to ask them at the end of the semester to prepare a variety of family business governance documents, like a constitution, an employment policy. Uh, a compensation and retention policy for family members and present those to uh, the people that I have been working with uh, who are in family businesses. So their, their final project will be basically a family business handbook. I'm pretty sure they don't understand how hard that is because I'm not sure I even understand how hard it is. But all of my classes, my teaching philosophy is that uh, students l learn best by doing uh, I'm not a big fan of tests. I, I like little quizzes because they foster generation or uh, discussion, generate discussion. But uh, all of my classes require students to do stuff. So when people, and I don't even argue with people anymore, and they say, you can't teach entrepreneurship. I say, yeah, I'm not really teaching entrepreneurship. I, I, mean, I don't even care if they can spell entrepreneurship. I can't type the word entrepreneurship. I mean, I struggle physically, with that myself. I am unable to type. It, it, it never works. Um, but students that go through my class, women that went through my workshop, I've worked with uh, uh, Hmong and Thai refugees. They go through one of my workshops. They, they may not know how to spell entrepreneurship, but they're not afraid of the concept of entrepreneurship. I demystify the startup process, and I kind of, I call it de-scarifying it. They're, they don't have to be scared of lawyers. They don't have to be scared of the accountants. I actually, somebody goes to one of my workshops, they'll come out of it with a basic P&L, and they hate accounting frequently going into that, and I just don't call it accounting. Uh, because the people I worked with in my career, none of them studied entrepreneurship because it didn't exist. Most of them didn't have business degrees. Some of them hadn't even graduated from college. So I knew that that stuff wasn't what was important. What's important is this mindset, and there are some best practices, so I focus on that. There are some great tools that weren't available, tools that I wish we had had, and I introduced them to that. So that's how, how I approach that. And the rest of my time, I basically take that same attitude um, work with the Papa John staff, uh, bring my experience and, and outlook, uh, both in the professional world, 
I bring that academic stuff into the programming and advising that we do. And I had a lot of experience in developing student programs and co-curricular programs before I came to Iowa State and very complimentary. And what I have here is the opportunity to work with a very, very strong team um, and a diverse team, which is really terrific. So, uh, and then the family business is like the icing on the cake for that. So those are kind of three things that I focus on. What's your favorite Papa John Center program, if you had to pick one? Um, well, Psy Starters is just head and shoulders. I mean, it's, it is such a terrific thing. So that's where we recruit students from across campus. Uh, the colleges all put up funding for that, which is a marvelous model. We get incredible buy-in from the deans and senior faculty. And we get students from each of the colleges uh, who present startup ideas. Sometimes they've already started up, and we uh, essentially make a deal with them that we pay them $6,500 a person to work on their startups full-time uh, from the middle of May to through the end of July. And our goal, and I was just talking with Diana Wright, who helped originate that program here uh, under Judy's leadership, uh, that there's a founding startup focus, but interestingly, a lot of what, particularly our younger students, because it's open to any Iowa State student or anybody that's graduated within six months prior to the program, the, the growth and personal development that they achieve is as important and probably as valuable to them as whether or not they, their venture actually gets off the ground. Because some of their ventures don't deserve to you know, go beyond the program, and we find that out. That's just the nature of the game. Mm -hmm. um, but it's outstanding. You know, maybe as a corollary to that, Matt, being at Iowa State, this is a gigantic sandbox for me to play in. I mean, it's still incredibly exciting. Frankly, there's still places I can't find without GPS here. But much as I was able to do at Drake and much as I did building my teaching career, where I went anywhere and I did anything people asked me, I have, I will be in my fourth or fifth session of software or computer engineering and software design classes. I met uh, Samantha Mitra at uh, a Ivy College of Business Barbecue two summers ago. We were just standing in line together. And what do you do? Oh, I teach entrepreneurship. I said, what do you do? He said, oh, I teach uh, a software design capstone course. I said, oh, that's really cool. He said, well, we should work together. And I said, yeah, we should. And I thought he was in the business school. It turns out he's in the, over in, uh, at an Asoff in the computer engineering program, entirely different college. I don't even know where it was. And he and I have now done, I think, four classes together. We were featured in the, the, uh, monthly newsletter for the computer engineering program. Um, that's an outstanding opportunity that came about because of this weird collegiality at this gigantic place with 36,000 students. There were, there were 3,600 students at Drake. I mean, this is crazy. Um, How do you create more of that? Well, that's part of my job. So talking to guys like you doing this, you know, going on and on and on and on and on. But I, um, we hosted the Society for Arts Center arts entrepreneurship educators uh, at, in the fall of 2019, right before the spaghetti hit the fan. And that came about because uh, of a passion I had for connecting people in Des Moines. I'd gotten to know some of the people who started the Des Moines Music Coalition, and I saw what they struggled to do, but I also saw what they are able to do. And I met a couple of faculty at Drake, reached out to me because one of our early 
student entrepreneurs was actually a writing major, but he had developed an athletic training device. And they, and they were amazed that he got money because they were always struggling for money. And we had lots of money. And they, so we, we became friends and we started working on an innovation and arts track for entrepreneurship. And had I stayed, I would have done more for that. We did a whole program uh, when I was at Drake on the cultural crossroads and the creative economy. And I realized that creatives, however you define that, and that could be everything from a graphic designer to a studio artist, uh, to a performance artist, a musician, the economy or the, the culture reminded me of entrepreneurship 20 years ago in Des Moines where there are lots of people, they didn't know what they were doing, they were lousy networkers, they, were, they, were, they felt neglected, they weren't getting any love, there was support for entrepreneurship, but there wasn't support for entrepreneurs. We have to support entrepreneurs, we have to support our artists and creatives. So we hosted that conference, it was very successful, we had like a, close to 100 academics, we had I can't remember how many dozens of presentations and everything from improv comedy to Simon Estes participated in that and made friends across campus. We have the poet laureate for the state of Iowa on staff at Iowa State. And she is a hoot, man. And she's got this creative do-it-yourself, can-do-anything vibe that was very much aligned with my approach to entrepreneurship. Um, we were working with Jim Bovinette, who winding down his career but he started a jazz entrepreneurship club judy isles helped him start that 10 years ago and we're, we're picking that up um we have a very strong relationship in the human science area particularly in the retail and uh, uh kind of event planning business to uh, uh linda neem she's just a rock star her dean and her department are all over entrepreneurship i've lectured in her classes for the last 10 years um i will go anywhere and and mostly following in Judy's footsteps, but I have the advantage of I'm in the classroom a lot, and I can step into a classroom, and uh, I'm kind of the Pied Piper for entrepreneurship around campus. So how do we do more? We just do more. When you think of entrepreneurship, as a, from a student's perspective, we've seen a lot of change in the university's uh, approach to entrepreneurship. Um, a lot of the branding has changed. A lot of the, uh, programs have changed. Um, how does, how does a university, s uh, an entire university focus impact the strategy as opposed to just having the Papa John center mm -hmm. or just having a few classes here and there? What, what kind of synergies does that create? What kind of, you know, what, does it make more of those interactions like you were talking about earlier? So that's a great question. And it actually ties in with one of the major appeals uh, to me very late in my career to go from my, you know, 10-minute commute to be driving up to Ames typically five days a week, often six days a week because that's because we're just like, we're in business all the time. But it was when Wendy Winterstein became president and her opening remarks got on my radar before I even came here because she was and remains a huge champion of innovation and entrepreneurship for the land-grant university. I mean, as a land-grant university, and I don't think people credit or even understand how valuable that is to have Iowa State in the center of the state. The land-grant mission is to help extend the knowledge that the research uh, drives at a university like United, uh, at Iowa State and share it with all four corners and all three million people in Iowa. 
Hence, we have an extension presence in all 99 counties. That's because we're the land-grant university. And I think that the corners of the state, and I keep meeting people from the corners of the state, from these dinky little towns, man, I mean, from like in the middle, in my world, in the middle of nowhere, doing cool stuff, and they have these 10, 20, 30 million dollar businesses that are 50 years old, 60 years old. I said, these guys are, men and women are the, and many of them are women, are more entrepreneurial than I've ever have been. That was a huge appeal, but to hear the president of the university name check entrepreneurship and innovation, virtually every public address that she, that she gives, and to see the dean hang his hat on developing entrepreneurship and incorporating innovation at the university, and then to see that there is buy-in, because lots of presidents talk about that, none as ardently as she does, and I've seen evidence that the schools are all embracing entrepreneurship. Well, um, it's like you said with your, with your classes that you're teaching. You, you, entrepreneurship itself is not something that you can teach like you said to you i like the analogy of your students might not be able to spell it but they sure know how to do it right that's the follow-through that uh that the difference between a, a university that talks about it and a university that's that exactly does it. right that's exactly right and it's but having that top-down support which is really cool because the part of what i described in my approach is and and, and there's support in entrepreneurship in iowa i mean the state puts up some dough they, they've been trying to figure out how to do it better. There is a there is kind of an, an attitude in many of the ag states. They, they they like that support. They like those government floors that protect them. There aren't there's no floors for entrepreneurs. I mean you can fall through the floor in entrepreneurship. So I I kind of look at that state support. I look at the support of the president of the university, the support of the dean as as rain. But the hard work and the growth occurs on the ground in the dirt, and that's where I like to play. And I have found that in all the programs that I've developed. While there's support institutionally, the action occurs with another person and me, another person that Judy has been talking to for years or that Diana introduces me to or one of my students introduces me to in a, uh, another realm of the university, and I make that connection at the ground level, at a very grassroots level. Entrepreneurs grow up from the ground. It has to grow up from the ground. The, some of the nurturing support, the money, uh, the institutional support can come from above, but entrepreneurship is not created in the president's office. You it's mentioned our office at my level. You mentioned earlier, uh, specifically with the Sci Starters program, that there are companies who um, the end of the Sci Starters program is the end of their road, mm -hmm. and rightfully so. Where do where where do you separate? Um, is, is there I'm trying to think of how to phrase this? Where does that separation happen of this is an idea that deserves the funding and needs the support versus this is an idea that, how do you balance? There's only so many dollars in the pot. How do you, how do you balance that? Um, well, there's a lot of dollars in the pot, first of all. Uh, it's a bit of a, I think, a mistaken assumption that there's not enough money. Now. There's plenty of money around. I believe money flows to good businesses. But not all ideas are good businesses. And the, the, the differentiator, Matt, is, and this is something, I'm a bit of a, not a lone voice because of some, of the, some of the faculty embrace this, but everybody likes to talk about the idea. Hey, that's a, that's a really good idea. Yeah, that's great. I don't know. I mean, I, gotta, I, I could show somebody my, my personal investment track record. There is irrefutable proof that I do not pick good ideas all the time. 
I pick a lot of clinkers. I'm interested in a lot of stuff that is not does not pan out. But it isn't up to me. And what I tell my students is they don't get an A because they have a good idea. They don't succeed in size starters because they have a good idea. Everybody gets into that program has a credible idea that a bunch of smart people believe is credible. The people that come out the other end with viable businesses make the connection and they shift their focus away from the idea and to the needs of others. They become, they develop this empathy for potential customers. And I kind of call it turning the, 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 the telescope around as you get away from your idea. I mean, there's all kinds of research that your idea probably sucks. I mean, candidly, it probably does. Certainly in its first iteration, nobody goes through SciStars and comes out the end looking like they did when they came in. Nobody goes into the entrepreneurial process in a smooth, straight line with the same makeup and the same outfit they had at the end. I mean, it, that is a that just never happens. And the ones that come out and are in business at the end figured out how to do something that somebody else cares about. I tell people the, the entrepreneur equation is pretty simple. You have to answer three questions. What do you do? And we start there because that's just where we start. And that's, there's a problem, I solve it. There's an itch, I scratch it. There's a gap, I fill it. And if they, if they can't say that, they don't know what they're doing. And if they can't do it in one sentence, they don't know what they're doing. The next question is, who cares? And that's the most important question. Because it could sound really cool to you and me, but if nobody cares, and by cares, I mean reach into their pocket and take some of their money or trade their time and resources, it does not matter. And then, then the last question, and, and I don't even care about the last question if you can't answer the first two, and I don't care about one and three if you can't answer number two. That is a non-starter with me. The last question is how will you do it? How will you build the thing? How much will it cost? And that should be real simple. We can build it for five and sell it for 10. But the who cares part, so the differentiator is successful entrepreneurs, and there's, this is actually research-based. I didn't make this up. I made up the kind of the, the approach, but the, is they solve problems other people have. They make other people's lives better. They do something other people want. That sounds kind of intuitive, right? But it's not about the idea. It's about being sensitive to what are, what are the frustrations. What are causing the negative reactions in other people? What are the stressors in their life? What makes them anxious? What are they worried about? Address that. And then you're not selling them something. You're presenting them a way to make their life better. It changes the entire dynamic. It changes the entire conversation. Mm -hmm. It isn't come up with some gizmo and go out and sell, 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 sell. Selling is important. Selling is really hard. And I'm not taking any away from salespeople. Sales is inherent in this, but the focus of successful entrepreneurs is making other people's lives better. What are some companies or products or people specifically that stick out since you started with the, with the Papa John Center or, or on campus? Um, well, that's, that's a good question. So there's, there's a number of young people doing some really interesting things that I think are, have, have embraced, and most of them, quite a few of them got started before I got here, but uh, Clayton Mooney is a uh, young man who's started, he's been on your podcast, I think he's got a nebulum. They've come up with an innovative um, uh, growing system that is space friendly, resource friendly, it could be a real solution for food deserts and urban settings and in developing economies. Um, he's got a, also a very diverse background, but he, you know, he's figuring out the customer empathy part uh, Lauren Gifford's a recent graduate of the uh, uh, SciStarters thing. She was a, actually was a, 
we became friends when I met her at one of Judy's networking classes. Uh, it was late in the, in the session, and uh, we were. I think everybody was getting ready to go. It was December, and I walked up to Lauren and I said, "Hey, what are you doing?" She kind of slumped her shoulders, like, "Oh, do I have to do this again?" And I was like, "Are you kidding me? I don't have to be here. You have to tell me what you do. Don't give me that. That's ridiculous." And she kind of was taken aback. She's a very uh, kind of put together, you know, very very polite uh, young woman, very sharp, but she she clearly was just kind of worn out, and she thought I was just kind of making time. And I was like, and her friend said, "Wait a minute, you gotta listen to her. She's got whatever it was. I think it was thirty or forty thousand followers on YouTube." Well, my ears perked up. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what's a lot, but that was more than anybody anybody I'd ever met personally had. And I said, okay, now you really have to tell me. And she gave me a great answer. And I said, okay, well, I want you to come talk to me. And I say that to students all the time. And frankly, a lot of them don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did. And we hit it off. And I actually hired her as my teaching assistant to help me with an entrepreneurship course that she'd never even taken before. But she's a, she was a very good writer, very good communicator. And then I... Um, along with others, including Judy, but we encouraged her to participate in Size Starters, and she did, and she is now out supporting herself through uh, murals. She, she paints murals. She had a, uh, her, her YouTube presence was with calligraphy. And interestingly, uh, her best, her most watched videos were often her talking about other things. So she also journaled, and she used a certain journaling method, and that was one of her most popular YouTube videos. And that's something that I encourage my students to do. And I've actually had her come and talk to my students about that. Uh, so she connected the dots that way. There's a couple young guys, uh, they were in One Million Cups two weeks ago, have a new consumer product, it's a backpack attachment. I think they've gone through the entrepreneurial process, self-taught, uh, figured it out on their own as much as anybody I've interacted with. Uh, Stephen Broxius has a very successful uh, farmland finder business. He's he's figured out a way to bring digital technology. Also figuring out has raised some money. Um, those those are the ones that come immediately to mind here locally. I had a couple young people, two young women started uh, consumer products companies when I was at Drake, and they're both still in business. When Kelsey Zeman has a cosmetics and cosmetic product. Uh, uh, Meg, it's now Meg Miller. She was Meg Fisher at the time. Started a. a she wanted to do a baby's boutique, uh, have a bricks and mortar store in my first capstone, and she was, a, she was a rock star in that class, and I told her she couldn't do it. That was back when I told students they, they couldn't do things. And she got really mad, and I said, yeah, well, that business stinks, and it's, there's no challenge to it. You can go buy the business plan, but you can't do that in this class. You've got to do something else. So she, we worked together, and she devised a, a baby shower in a box type uh, party business to eliminate the inventory, and she actually was... Uh, one of the Papa John winners that year. Uh, she's still in business, but she's she's actually moved away from bricks and mortar. She has two kids now, and uh, she's doing all online business. So she kind of came full circle. She did ultimately open her store, and it was quite successful, but it, she did it after three or four years of that. So that's kind of the range of uh, things I know. There are there's others up here. I'm just drawing blanks on all the, the enterprising young people. Um, oh, Emily... She came to you, she was going to start an ice cream business. She, she wanted to do kind of farm to table, comes out of a family farm. She wanted it to continue. And she is actually out working right now, and I, I'm drawing a blank on her last name. Uh, she is successfully promoting farm and dairy products from her family farm, and she is just doing it through sheer grit and determination. She's probably one of the most determined young people I've ever met. I'll get her your name because she'd be a good candidate for this podcast. Cool. That'd be great. 
You've seen a lot of good ones. I'm sure you've seen a lot of bad ones. You don't have to give me any names. But what if if you can pick out a couple of key characteristics, or maybe it's a personality trait, maybe it's a um, maybe it's something that they do early on. What what kind of separates the good from the bad? Can, is there any kind of common denominator that you can find, or is it all over the board? Well, one there there's no. Uh, personality profile there's no psychographic profile for entrepreneurs a lot of people have tried a lot of people mistakenly believe entrepreneurs are very risk oriented in fact entrepreneurs are just they're very good at calculating risk and and taking risks that they can afford and again that's not my opinion that's actually research based um, and I found that to be true the entrepreneurs I knew over the years the, the difference between them is that they started they took that step it's just like the difference between a, a musician who has recorded or published something and those who didn't. Is they wrote it down. They performed it. They performed it and got booed a lot. They performed it and they got knocked out. They, people said no to them a lot, but they did that. They take that first step. So I go through the people I just mentioned. Clayton, Liz, Stephen, uh, Meg, Kelsey, this young woman with the, the food business. They took that step, and they did it at a time when, if it failed, it, I mean, it sucks. Failings, nobody likes that. But, and I don't worship at the altar of failure the way some people do, but, but they're able to, to overcome that. They're very resilient. In the Sci Starters program, the students who succeed show up, they come back, they do the things we ask them to, and they don't look for the rubric. They don't look for the detailed instructions and is what's the break point for a grade they look how can i get the most out of this program and you tell me to do these things how can i how do those things apply to what i'm doing and they come and ask for that the failures and and not failures the students who have had the uh the less the less rich outcomes because again some of the most resilient students that venture didn't work but they start another venture because they've now gotten over the fear of starting but the students who have the less rich outcomes um, don't dive in, don't roll their sleeves up, don't own the process. Just like students in my classes, the students who excel in my classes figure stuff out. Uh, and I'm not big at telling them how to do stuff. I just make them do stuff. There's a difference. Um, and I want them to figure it out because all the successful entrepreneurs I know, including these young people, figure stuff out. And in fact, most of them, even if they're in my class, and, and none of those have been in my class. Uh, well, Meg was. Meg and Kelsey were. But even they, they just ignored half the advice I gave them. They ignored half the research-based lessons. Because in real life, you don't stop to read the textbook. So they, and they all had just hair-raising challenges. I mean, things that like, oh my God, at 23, 24 years old, my biggest challenge was, you know, was I going to cover rent? Or, you know, could I get a uh, you know beer for the weekend? But they 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 had payroll challenges. They had people steal stuff. They had people attack them online. They had uh, technology that didn't work, and they keep coming back. So there's a resiliency there. And and our training and what my classes do. I go back to what I said before is we demyst we demystify that. You can do it. Not everybody's going to do it. I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. I think everybody should study entrepreneurship, going back to your question before about the university. I think in this day and age, a person needs to know what entrepreneurship 
is what it entails, how it relates to innovation, or they're, they're not getting an education. It is ubiquitous. The, a focus on entrepreneurship and innovation uh, is present in every part of the world. Every leader in the world is talking about the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation in order to keep up, let alone get ahead. So what I, the, the, the failures are um, probably people who maybe not that engaged and maybe they decide it's not for them and they're just not gonna put in the time and the effort um, versus those who get the most out of the program, those that get the most out of my classes um, say, hey, I can do this and I can figure out how to make this work over here. I want to be conscious of, of your time here. Um, if you had one, you know, if you had five minutes to sit down with uh, a random student or a random maybe graduate, maybe alumni uh, that is looking at something entrepreneurship, whether it's starting their own, as simple as starting their own business or uh, presenting something new at work, what, what do you tell somebody as a, just the quick elevator pitch uh, what? How do you think? How do you go about something like that? Can you can you simmer down uh, an entire semester's worth of of class into a, a soundbite? Yeah, I got to be careful because sometimes I I'm I have found that so for instance last spring when we had the shift to all virtual and I I had to compress some things at the end of the class it kind of made me think boy do I really need fourteen or fifteen weeks for this and it I didn't the outcomes were really good uh, I've done six week uh, graduate uh, curricula, very you know, fast-paced. The outcomes are good, so I'm not sure, try as I might, that you need uh, three hours a week of me for 15 weeks. As you can tell, I can fill up the space, but uh, I and, and as I said, most people don't. But here, here's what I tell people: it takes two things, and this is and I and I love that you asked about whether you're in a business, uh, you're in, maybe in a larger organization, including nonprofits, including, including places like the universities, and universities are ripe for disruption and innovation. I really thought we were going to see more on uh, this pandemic. It's hard. Uh, the inertia is, is hard to overcome. But here's what I think it takes. It takes two things. The person has to care, him or herself. It has to be something they are interested in. The word passion comes up with every entrepreneur I mean, 100% of the entrepreneurs that have I, I've had come to my classes or that have visited classes at the request of admissions or recruiting, without prompting, they all talk about their success arc starts with they found something they really were interested in, they really cared about. Because that's when you take the deep dive. And they became experts in these things. But it's because they cared. It was valuable to them. And, and they found something that was valuable to somebody else. Now think about it, in that work context, it's very important to know what is the ultimate goal? What, are, what is that company? And I tell my students, you get a job out there, you get your first job out of school, uh, you gotta figure out where you fit in the business model. And I, and I use a rubric for that, it, it's, a, it's a cool template. But I said, if, if you cannot draw a straight line from what you do, what your job function is, to the value that your company provides to your customers, that company's customers, ask your boss, your immediate boss, your supervisor. And if he or she can't tell you how what you are being asked to do further serves that ultimate customer, get another job. Because that person doesn't know what they're doing and that, that's not gonna fly. You have to connect what you do as an entrepreneur with other people. Now having said that, 
Most college students are broke. I was more than broke, right? I mean, I had student debt and all that. I, I needed a job. I had to pay some bills. I think that's a great thing to do. And I'm, I, I have friends of mine in the entrepreneurship space get mad at this. Ah, you know, it's a great time to start a business. Absolutely. But you got to pay the rent. You got to eat. And I don't like ramen noodles that much myself. So you got to eat. So figure out a way to pay the bills. And maybe you're not passionate about that. You got to pay the bills. Go get a job. Get the experience. Pay attention. Watch what other people do. But when you have that itch, when you say, there's a thing. Or I got this idea. Remember what I said. Ideas are like noses, right? Everybody's got them and blah, blah, blah. So does that idea something that you really care about? And does anybody else care about it? And do a lot of other people care about it? So when you go into your boss with an idea, I don't think you should go into your boss with an idea unless you can say to that boss, here's who it's going to help. Here's how it advances our cause. Here's how it brings value to these people, which then will pay the raise I'm about to ask you for because I brought you this cool idea. Great. It takes those two things. Excellent. Tom, thank you for the time. Anything in closing? So I really would encourage people uh, to pick their heads up. I would like to see more people in Iowa celebrating their children, their colleagues, their friends who start new things, whether it's a new business, a new nonprofit, who come in with an, I with an idea, but they, they're taking that shot, and I think we should celebrate them more. I, I think the kind of the, I describe it as the scuff on your toe and the dust, aw shucks, humility, which is a great part of the people in Iowa. I mean, they're amazingly accomplished. We need more people kind of... Uh, full of it full not, not just full of themselves but we need more commotion we need more people bumping into each other we need more people to realize oh my gosh my neighbor or my neighbor's kid or my neighbor's parent or cousin did this cool thing help help serve people we need to celebrate that we need to talk about it more uh we need to be louder about it uh, the world is not going to find us otherwise. Notwithstanding, we've got the two biggest interstates in the country come through Iowa. People aren't stopping, but they're going to stop when they realize that there's a heck of a lot going on here. And there's a heck of a lot going on here. I just wish people would promote it a little bit better. I want them all on your podcast. You should be doing five of these a day. There's a thousand people at Iowa State you should have on this podcast. I'm 100% convinced of that. Oh. I'm, gonna keep, I'm keeping track. We'll see what we can do. Going forward, but Tom, thanks for the time. Appreciate you being here, sharing a little bit of, a little bit of wisdom, and uh, yeah, thank well, you very much. Sharon, I don't know if it's wisdom or not. <laughs> <laughs>